The goal is not just bright and shiny wrapping paper. It's sticky wrapping. We want that story to stick with the audience and be shared and move around. Everybody has a life of stories, a career of stories. Not everybody gives those stories credence. Most people discount those stories. And often people are telling stories that aren't theirs, and that can undermine the potency of what's being shared on stage. And those stories can't, again, just be inserted because they're entertaining or tangential to the topic. They really ideally wrap around the big idea, wrap around each of the three key points, and help with the spread. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. So here's today's question. What makes a breakaway TED Talk? You know, if there's one phenomenon in the world of storytelling that has been impossible to ignore over the last decade, it is this one, the TED Talk. Sometimes inspiring, often igniting, potentially career-defining. Think Simon Sinek, Brene Brown, Amy Cuddy. The TED Talk has become a launching ground for more thought leaders and breakaway ideas than I would say pretty much any other platform. It has also completely rewritten the rules around storytelling and presenting. You think you need an hour to make your point? Think again. Think you need 60 slides to make an impact? Think again. Think you can't change the hearts and minds of millions of people across the globe in under 10 minutes? Think again. To prove that point, TED videos get over 3 billion views annually. 3 billion. And that's not including the views of their videos on other platforms such as YouTube or social media. The most popular TED Talk of all time is by the legendary Sir Ken Robinson, which to date has topped, last time I checked, 72 million views and counting. However, for me, the rise of TED created something else. It created a really interesting question. And that question is, what makes an idea worth spreading? How do you take an idea, a complex set of expertise, years of experience, data, and then distill it down again and again and again until at the end of the process, you have something so simple, so compelling, so action igniting, that it has the power to start or fundamentally change a global conversation. And that is the question that led me to our next guest. My guest today is behind some of the most viewed talks in TED history. Devin Marks is the nation's leading TED and TED-style speaking coach. Devin founded the first virtual TED Talk coaching firm, having developed his methodology by researching over years exactly why TED and TEDx talks were so popular. 
The result was a science-based framework that unpacks, decodes the astounding success of leading talks. His clients range from CEOs, technologists, best-selling authors, veterans, and thought leaders, including Dr. Robert Waldinger, a Harvard researcher who delivered one of the most viral TED Talks in history. It was called What Makes a Good Life? Go check it out. And since its release in 2015, it is now in the TED Top 10, with 40 million views and counting. Collectively, the spreadworthy ideas of Devin's clients have been viewed by hundreds of millions of people around the world. He is also, not, not slightly incidentally, just an amazing human being. In this storytelling masterclass, we jumped straight into how to find and refine your breakthrough idea. The one sentence description, and it does need to be that simple, that's captivating enough to cut through the noise. The six elements of a sticky story, including why texture, I mean, when you think about texture, think about using language that relates to all five of your senses. How using texture in our storytelling holds the key to lifting our game from interesting to captivating. The rule of three. Now, those who are veterans of the podcast, you will have heard this many times in many forms, but here it is again. Why the human brain loves the number three when it comes to messaging and how we can use that to design memorable content. The concept of winnable wins. I've, I've used this so many times in just the couple of weeks that have been since I had this conversation. Basically, why we should never ask for the big change or the big action when we're presenting our ideas but instead for a small commitment, essentially an easy win that can be done right now. And finally, beating imposter syndrome. Yep, that old monkey on our back who, given free reign, will often keep, and I have seen it too many times, the most brilliant minds, the most brilliant human beings glued to the sidelines unless we can learn how to harness it. You know, this conversation It isn't just about building a viral TED talk, although it contains all the ingredients to do so. This conversation for me is about a new age of storytelling and storytellers. Those with the ability to cut through and build momentum behind their ideas in a world where attention is scarce and getting scarcer and the noise is becoming overwhelming. Those individuals that are willing to put their own agenda aside, their own expertise aside, what they want to say aside, and wade through the complexity of their ideas in order to reach the why at the end that will compel us to take action. Basically, those who are committed to making a real impact. And for those of you who are ready to make your own impact and take it to the next level, please don't forget hop on my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. Covers the seven areas and the seven core questions that I actually use in my conversations with world-leading thought leaders, world-leading experts that I have found hands down the most useful when it comes to fast-tracking your influence. Just pop in your email address and it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to make a cup of tea. On that note, sit back stride out drive safe and enjoy the razor sharp insights of the ted whisperer himself devon marks welcome to the podcast devon marks great to have you here well thank you really looking forward to getting to know your audience 
I'm really looking forward to getting to know your story and the contents of your head. Uh, I wanted to I'll kick off with a question that I always kick off with, and that is um, what's one idea that's having a huge amount of influence on you or your thinking right now? And again, you know, those who listen to the podcast regularly will have heard me say this. It's because those who have great ideas tend to find great ideas. They have a radar for them before the rest of us. And so I'm just fascinated. What's one idea that's really fueling your thinking? Well, this crystallized for me in the last year in a number of conversations. The big question I've got is what is the last decade going to be about? What is the last decade going expand for me? I'm 50 something years old. Uh, I have a lineage of uh, Alzheimer's in the family and early onset could be my reality. And so I've hit pause in my career ambitions and started asking, what's the last decade going to be. And what's been fun as I ask the uh, mentors, the former clients who are really close friends, um, what their response is to that a number of times I've heard, wow, I'm wrestling with the same thing, except John Beckett is 83 years old. Um, I had a conversation with uh, Jeremy Connell Waite, who you would love uh, chatting with someday uh, at IBM. And he's 50 something and is asking very much that as a father of two uh, twins, six year olds, but realizing there's only so much ramp left. And um, may I be blessed to have three decades uh, but my mother recently uh, passed away with uh, early onset, and her father had, and her grandfather probably did. We didn't call it Alzheimer's back then. So I'm I'm planning on a, a decade ahead and really beginning to position a lot in my career and family and outside priorities to zone in on that. That's, that is just a, a beautiful and profound train of thought really and it reminds me of have you read four thousand weeks by oliver Burton? i should it sounds like it's it's a similar thought train which is if this is the period that i have it's obviously finite if this is the period that i have how would i rather than unconsciously kind of tripping through it mm-hmm. um how do i consciously design it right what do i what do i want and not from the period of how much do i jam into it but from a very different place. How do I want it to feel? How do I want to feel? How do I want my family to feel in relation to me? Um, where is that thought? Where is that thought train taking you at the moment? If you don't mind me asking. Well, the the conversation continues. Really, I, I shared with somebody recently. It, this vision and understanding of what's next is forming storming. And we're not in the norming space yet, but it's very much informed by the experience of my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, great-great-uncle. I'm a bit of a student of family history and American commerce. And there, there was a day I wandered into my grandmother's attic in Kentucky, and I became the keeper of the pile of papers and junk and letters and clothes. It's such a great title. I became the keeper yeah, of the pile. Yeah. I think that's how a lot of people feel. In that yeah. Moment. And uh, one, one of the treasures out there was 1700 letters uh, written to my great 
grandfather, uh, 1884 to the Great Depression. And uh, by his by his parents who traveled the world and wrote their young uh, boy who was significantly younger than his siblings, um, who was in the care of nannies and, you know, boarding school, wrote him a letter every day that they were gone. And they traveled at one point, you know, six months, um, many, many around the world. And all these letters I put in sequential order and then began a study of a life well lived. Now, mind you, short-lived because he, you know, died early. Um, but a life well-lived and a life of significance. But a mentor of mine said, Devin, you know, that that path isn't uh, survival, success, significance. It doesn't stop there. Um, the next level is surrender. Surrender to ego. Surrender to self surrender to. And I saw a lot of surrender, conscious attempts at surrender in DeLoss's life and uh, the lives of his older uncles who really were significant players in American commerce uh, in the industrial age. And um, they founded the first um, Dow Industrial Average stock of 13 uh, U.S. leather and um, which sounds really exciting because U.S. steel is a big deal. But, you know, U.S. leather had the distinction of being the first Dow Industrial Average stock to go bankrupt. <laughs> so, you know, in that story, <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs> and as as they asked, what is what is it all about um, that uh, leaning into significant surrender space really resonated in letters and journals in margin notes of books and all of that was the archive that i inherited and so that that shift from significance to surrender which it's really fascinating to me you know this podcast is about a lot of topics you know there's we talk about the the three main buckets of influence how you influence yourself how you influence one-to-one and, and how you influence one-to-many and yet for this past year every single conversation seems to have touched on this space, which is the, the, the moment in between. The, some people call it the wilderness. Some people call it the fertile void. Um, some people just call it the I don't know what's coming next and I'm still just trying to surrender to letting the universe speak to me rather than constantly trying to talk over it. Um, and it doesn't matter the background and it doesn't matter the accomplishments, but everybody I'm speaking to seems to somehow be in this space. What are some of the, I don't want to say practices, but what are some of the things that you're doing in your daily life to help you move through that with some form of grace? Because it's a period of time that you can easily resist. Good question. So I've, for, this is a pre-COVID habit, but it is really um, a cornerstone of my week year after year. I practice something um, called Thinker Thursdays. And um, so on Thursday, I uncouple from the workload and shut myself off with a real book. So dog-eared pages and margin notes. Are we talking paper yeah. here? Yeah. Right. Actual right. physical paper. Yep. Um, physical paper as in writing and then conversation. So, you know, the read, connect, reflect theme. Um, but all of that is about margin and slowing down. And it was 
it was something I adopted again pre-COVID and then you know, in COVID it adapted because we weren't having face-to-face two-hour martini lunches anymore. But um, that time in the work week, uncoupled from the distraction, really um, allowed me to deeply think about certain things um, more often than I did usually. Um, You know, how many of us really structure returning to a topic again and again and again um, in writing, in conversation, in reading. Um, you know, that's, that's one. That's one way I've been uh, approaching that uh, final decade, maybe. And I love that, that frame there. How many of us return to the same question over and over again? Like if it's a fundamental enough question, how many of us schedule time to sit with it? Um, and not sit with it with attachment of having to answer it as well, because that's easy to do, right? You sit there and just beat yourself up about the fact that you don't have the answer, right. but just sit there and, and let something speak to you, be it by reading, be it in conversation, be it just in thought. Well, I, I could sit in this place with you all day because this is a conversation. <laughs> it feels like, honestly, genuinely, it feels like a conversation that is having me at the moment, as opposed to one, I I go into these episodes with a conversation that I am, you know, planning to have. And this is a conversation that just keeps having me at the moment. And by proxy, everybody who listens to this podcast. The COVID effect. The COVID effect. Mm. It could well be. It could well be. I want to talk a little bit about you and your life. And as I said, the contents of your head. So you you started out as a seminary graduate or seminary dropout. To a seminary. <laughs> seminary dropout. <laughs> I had dropout here. I didn't. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what sure. the research that we found has said. Um, but it fits with something that I have been thinking about for a while, and that is, you know, I've been in the in the speaking industry for for twenty years, and I started out in working as an agent. I started my management company, and so I have managed, coached, worked with professional speakers for a very long time. And I had this secret theory, and it was very secret. I think this is the first time I've really talked about it. That those who excelled, who were at the top of their game, who just seemed to be in one way naturals with the concept of getting up there and sharing their ideas in a compelling way, all seem to have a background in having attended churches Mm. or religious institutions frequently as children. And it got me thinking and I was like, well, of course, because week after week after week, you show up and you watch somebody at the front of that room tell stories that changed hearts and minds and you're trained for it. And so that's my theory. And I wanted to put it to you. Is that, does that feel true for you? Is that, did that background impact? Julia, it it played out um, uh, pretty clearly and cleanly. Uh, The the backstory, you know, how does one become a a TED speaker coach or a TED style coach? You know, everybody's got. Oh, you didn't just do a a course at. At college on how to become well, a you know, coach. I was, a, you know, the the Great American uh, Recession. I was splatted face into the pavement and back home, uh, licking my wounds in a two street light town, uh, a company town where Methodist ministers are trained. You know, um, there's Asbury College on one side of the street now, University, and uh, Asbury Seminary on the other side of the street. That was my father's path, my grandfather's path, my great grand, all the way back to the founding of those institutions. And um, 
when I was beginning to ask, what is going on with these lectures that are explosively popular, TED Talks, um, where can I deconstruct this? Seminary uh, was the answer, because you're not going to, you know, enroll in business school and figure that out. And, uh, you know, traditional oration is not the space. Um, the uh, um, independent study in a communications program, I came out of the number one, two or three communications program in the U.S., uh, the Newhouse School at Syracuse University. And I knew that was not uh, the place because when I spoke to, you know, professors and uh, alumni over there, um, some of them hadn't even heard of TED. So this is 2008-9. Um, TEDx exploded on the scene in 2009. And so it's, it's pretty early. And I found one professor uh, across the street who said, I think we can do something with that because isn't that really um, what we've been doing here all along? An idea that spreads, is shared, and changes lives, right? Um, then it gets really funny, right? So one day I'm walking Main Street in, on this little, little town um, on a Sunday, supposedly going to church, which I hadn't been to in far, far too long. Couldn't even remember what time it was. And my mother is, who I mentioned, um, suffered from Alzheimer's. This is earlier on in her uh, path, but she had kind of forgotten what time church started too. And we're in this little two street light town, um, five minutes away from the front stoop and the doors are locked. It was 8.30, not nine o'clock. Nothing was happening in town. And there were no cars on the street nothing, no one out and about until I turned to go home and I looked up the hill and a lone character was walking down the other side of the street, distinguished, tall, older gentleman, white hair, white beard. And as he got closer and closer, he zoned in on us. And he, um, he said, would you like a tour of this town? <laughs> you know, and my, my mother, um, her social graces were, you know, starting to get challenged there. She bristled, you know, tightened her back and said, this is my town. I know it. And I immediately to kind of, you know, smooth over this awkward moment, walked right into the middle of the street. And this older fellow walked towards me and we met in the middle and a conversation started. And that conversation was one that changed my life over the next year and a half as it continued. Lyman Coleman was uh, a publisher, a, a, a best-selling author, a theologian, a pastor, uh, a this, that, and the other. But his, some of his backstory was he had been the um, lackey and the driver for Billy Graham. And he married Billy Graham's um, secretary. And over time, he was the young guy on the team. So he did the youth programming and the follow-up after the crusade blew through town and created a, 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 a specialty in small group dynamics. It really is considered the, uh, the grandfather of small groups uh, in the church in, in the U.S. And um, when I showed him Ted and he watched his first Ted talk, I think it was Sir Ken, probably. Um, he said, well, that's what Billy was doing back in his day. 
And I was like, Billy, well, I'm not on a first name, <laughs> you know, with Reverend Graham, but uh, Lyman was. And um, he said, uh, Billy was um, clearly focused in his message. Um, his messages were story wrapped, the biblical narrative, but also the personal. And there was a call to action um, that was igniting and doable uh, now, immediately, not next week, next month. Um, and television was new in his day. For Ted, a clearly focused story-wrapped action-igniting message is table ante for the successful talks. But what was new for Ted was social media and YouTube. And so, yes, that's a long way of maybe circling back to there is a huge overlap in the what I call the secular church of ideas, TED. And, uh, uh, you know, Sunday morning sermons with uh, good preachers, not the bad ones. <laughs> but also um, exposure, you know, exposure. how exposed we are to compelling ideas now how exposed we are to people who have the ability to deliver them in a, in a heartfelt, intentional, very deliberate way. And I often think as a parent, you know, how how wired my children will be. Unlike, a, I don't know about you, but when someone asked me to speak in front of a group when I was a kid, you know, I would have rather just stripped down to my underpants and done a lap around the field. But, you know, with this, the, the power of exposure, the power of seeing it, seeing it in action. And I also think it's worth talking about the phenomenon that is Ted, you know, it's before Ted, you could speak to a room of hundreds. You could maybe speak to a room of thousands, maybe, but it was very rare and unusual to have a platform that could reach millions of people. And, you know, some of the stats I have here, Ted has three, the Ted talks, so the collection of talks, 3 billion views annually. So Ken Robinson, who you mentioned, who I love, his talk is I think at the highest viewage which is 72 million views you know that was before ted that was unthinkable completely unprecedented what is it about ted do you think and we'll get into what makes a compelling ted talk in a second but what is it about the concept of ted that completely changed the game well you know the long answer is i isolated seven factors uh in my seminary independent study track that explain why TED is not a keynote, is not a sermon, is not a sales pitch, a funding pitch, that it's a very different uh, beast. Everyone thinks of immediately the countdown clock. And of course, that's one of the seven factors. Um, in, in seminary, I was able to add an academic rigor to what was a pet project, right? And I had the opportunity to compare and contrast TED and TEDx with some other short talk conferences that distinguished themselves in the day by using a countdown clock. One was the Idea Festival right up the road in Louisville, Kentucky, Kentucky Derby Land. Um, IF was the acronym. Brilliant gathering, very TED-like in its lighting and its stadium or a theater kind of environment. Um, um, the, the minimal PowerPoint kind of all those factors. Um, and then the other, now the idea festival has died. Um, it, it didn't replicate past 10 years, but the other factor uh, of comparison was a Christian conference called Q for question. Now Q 
of course, is an unfortunate uh, consonant these days in the U.S., but um, the Q conference, Q ideas, um, was very Ted, just blue light washing over the audience, and a countdown clock and dramatic uh, theater environment. They innovated on the TED model in that they had a countdown clock facing the speaker, but also facing the audience to hold the speaker accountable. Um, in comparing and contrasting, you know, a Q talk, even today, maybe 5,000 views would be a breakaway Q talk. Uh, the Idea Festival, 3,000 views would be a breakaway, but they look all three look the same at the surface level. So there's definitely more going on than a countdown clock and dramatic lighting, right? Uh, the theater environment is not the distinguishing factor. It's the combination of seven factors, three of which, you know, we'll speak to probably today. A TED Talk is distinctly and uniquely focused in a special way. Um, story wrapped, the, the points and the big idea are story wrapped. It's not insert story for opening, insert story for close, emotional, but. Um, and then uh, thirdly, action igniting. And I say, you know, a TED Talk is not, this is very sermon-like. A TED Talk is not um, boil the ocean, save the whales, you know, uh, save the ozone layer. Um, it's, it's a call to action that's much smaller than that. It's very much like a Billy Graham sermon. Take one small step right now that is in the direction of life change. It's a winnable win. It's a small step in the direction of the seashore, right? I, I say symbolically, I walk with my daughter hand in hand to the water's edge, and I see a piece of trash, and I invite her to pick it up. And then I pick up the next piece and she picks up a piece. But down the shoreline, somebody sees us picking up trash and they replicate that. They share that. It even becomes a habit. And if the call to action in a TED context is that, that's spreadable. Two things I, I picked out there from what you said. The, the importance of finite time, to have a finite period of time, which is not something I had thought about before, but by having a finite period of time, it forces you to get absolutely crystal clear. And the other one, as you said, is, is the winnable wins, like small winnable wins. Like what are you going to finish with? What can you give me as one step forward, not an overwhelming step, not change the world, not reinvent your entire life, but what is a small winnable win that you can give me that's going to point me in the right direction? Um, you know, since then, since you being at, at seminary school and, and deconstructing TED Talk, I know, TED Talks, I know that you have, you know, you've worked with some of the best TED speakers on the planet, um, coaching them to take them and their idea onto TED stages and ignite an idea that eventually goes viral. I want to talk about that first conversation. I just want to boil it down into when you first meet somebody, when somebody first inquires about working with you, and I'm sure it's not easy to get to work with you. What, do, what questions do you ask in that first conversation? What are some of the key points that you need to know in order to craft an incredible talk? Well, you know, uh, the first thing I'm looking for is just their idea in the midst of what's usually a lot of ideas or many, many weaves on ideas. I say, you know, there's a splay above every speaker's head of post-it notes. And I had a discovery call literally today with um, a remarkable 
woman who has an adventure story and experience in her recent past. But she started talking um, about the theme of patience in a way that I hadn't heard before. And that got my attention and I wanted to learn a little bit more. So we, we started pulling at that thread. Now, this you know first conversation, sometimes second, third conversation, it's still emerging. There are other times the speaker shows up, they've got the through line, they've got the hundred word version, they've got the, well, um, often those, those talks go through a full retread because the reality is um, the idea isn't TED ready. Uh, it's TED like. Um, I took my, I took my Dale Carnegie chops. I took my uh, public speaking um, uh, norm, and I applied it to TED, and I, I have a 15-minute talk. But those models of idea sharing and spreading are, are not, well, the TED spread effect. The effect is not the same. There's actually never been a Toastmaster champion with a million view talk to date. Why? I mean, that's fascinating. Right. It's very much because they're approaching idea sharing and spreading in the traditional model. Um, and Ted broke a lot of those uh, models, took a lot of the communication tools out of the tool shed and reworked them, threw a couple away and architected a couple new ones. Um, so there's, there's a lot that's very familiar in preparing a TED Talk, a lot of steps. Um, you know, I always say we move through four phases, idea to outline, you know, milling that idea is a six-step process, and it can take weeks. Um, uh, we may make our way down to the fourth step and find as we begin to share and get feedback that the idea really isn't uh, TED ready. And we go to another post-it note and start the milling process all over again. But phase two... Um, idea to outline, outline to script, script to rehearsals, rehearsals to stage, craft. Um, those all sound familiar. Those all sound like, you know, public speaking 101, Dale Carnegie meets um, Toastmasters. But each of those steps and terms are different in the TED context. One little example, right? You know, what am I talking about? Um, we have a script, we have, you know, a deck to build maybe. And so it's not open PowerPoint and open Microsoft Word. It was a dark and stormy night. Big idea. Key point one, two, three. Rousing story and call to action to bring them to their feet. I mean, you know, the talk may flow like that, but where we begin, where I begin with my clients, and I think this is one of my distinguishing, you know, approaches, is we start one with a big idea, and then we go right into the core of the script. What's key point one? What's key point two? Do we need a third, a fourth? If they're five, is there an acronym? Because the rule of three is dominant in the TED space. Um, but we need to get those three so they interrelate, lock, and move the idea forward, as opposed to just kind of off-kilter support the big idea. And that energy and time is where we spend the bulk of module two, you know, that scripting module. Once we have key point one, two, and three maybe ironed out, then we ask ourselves, what's the opening? Because how many 
minutes do we have left? We did our heavy work in the middle, in the core of the message. How much time do we have to close? Now, you know, I say, all right, we've got that done. Let's go to the opening or let's go to the close. Your choice. You mentioned through line as well there, and you touch on it very briefly, but I think it's worth going to. When you say through line, because it's the through line is something that's talked about a lot when it comes to putting together compelling ideas. Talk to me about what your version of the through line, what it means for you. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of terminology uh, floating, um, you know, the, the through line, the big idea. A friend of mine calls it the red thread, another the silver bullet. You know, it, we're, we're talking about the takeaway, big idea, right? And, um, you know, a, a good example is one of my clients, uh, Dr. Robert Waldinger. He's a Harvard researcher who uh, explores health and happiness in the lives of men and families. Um, uh, one of the most viral talks of all time in Ted land, uh, a top 10 all time talk, 42 million views. Yes. Sir Ken Robinson is ticking in the 70, 80, uh, million. He's been at it over 15 years or something now. Uh, Dr. Waldinger is about half that. So an explosively viral talk, the through line, the good life is built with good relationships. Now, He's looking at a longitudinal study of health and happiness in the lives of men. Every facet of a man's life was measured and weighed and compared and contrasted over 75 years. It's the largest data set of its kind in the world. Um, the good life is built with good relationships. So I want to know a little bit about the good life. How do you build it? And what are good relationships? Do you get the alliteration too? There's a rhythm to it, a balance to it. Um, undergirding that big idea, in his case, with three points. And again, there can be more than three, and that's where an acronym comes in handy sometimes. But um, uh, undergirding that big idea with three uh, points, we want those, again, to be balanced. Think architecturally. I talk about the message temple, right? The big idea is the roof of the dome, and you've got three pillars supporting it. They've got to be the same height, the same density, the same width. But they also need to, as we said before, interlock and move that idea forward. Um, move that audience to action. And in, in this case, um, uh, that through line sets up the movement that's going to come. And there's mastery to that simplicity as well. And, I, and I, I think that that's worth underlining because often we hear things and we think, well, it sounds really simple, of course. You know, of course, a, a great sure. life is really depends on our relationships, but there is mastery to simplicity. You know, you've got, especially if you've been studying something for decades, the amount of complexity that you have to wade through in order to get to a place of that much profound simplicity. And honestly, I've, you know, I work with speakers who have been doing it for decades. And even they struggle when they've, you know, become fascinated with the next big idea, you know, writing the book, even they struggle to encapsulate all of their thoughts and every, all of their outcomes into one compelling sentence. How do you, how do you lead people through that? How do you kind of take their hand when they're in the midst of the complexity of their experiences and their ideas to, to pull them towards profound simplicity? Well, it's, it's very much a milling process. And I don't use that you know, term is just a holding. 
um, we are milling flour, right? You know, finer, finer, finer. And so too often a speaker hears, oh, I need a silver bullet and I need a seven word through line or whatnot. There are a number of ways to approach that line. And I'm not saying my method is the only one by any stretch, but what I like to do is begin with that splay of ideas and then get it into say 400 words. And those are 400 loosey-goosey, um, still forming, storming uh, words. And then we begin shaving it down, 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 200 words, 100 words. Now, a lot of people are sharp and they go, okay, well, I'm going to just skip forward to 50 and drill from there. But no, um, what, what we're doing as we move from a 400-word expression to a 200, to a 100, to a 50, to a 25, to a is we're beginning to lay down a pattern of information sharing that is full of clues. And I, as a speaker coach, can come alongside that thought leader who's awash in expertise and detail and, and start to see perhaps the three key points glowing. Or I, I talk about, a, I see a bread trail and I start asking, well, tell me about this. The other thing that's uh, useful in that model of willowing down to the th through line, now there are three or four other activities. There's the focus, you know, circle feedback rounds. There's the compare and contrast, what talks are out there on this topic, et cetera, et cetera. But that six-step model, um, what, what is also useful is, is beginning to wrestle what should and shouldn't be in the talk with those different expressions and also identify, oh, wow, that's not wasted uh, copy. You know, the 400, the 200, the that's going to probably be a social media post later. Because, you know, when you step off stage, another whole workload begins as a speaker propelling an idea. Now, you know, the, the top 10 talks, you know, um, don't all have a clear and delineated through line like that. Top 25 don't. But, you know, Amy Cuddy, uh, power posing. Now, some people quibble with the research and there's a little bit of she's one of the few Tedsters with an asterisk, you know, that says this is contentious. Um, uh, these are findings that are worth digging into for yourself. Um, but that to the side, your body language shapes who you are. Through line. Simon Sinek, we've probably all seen his talk 11 times or more. Uh, people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Now, interestingly, uh, you have a through line and you start testing it and you start feedbacking it and you start asking, is it sticky? What was it? Um, and, and sometimes you're going to have to retread. Um, and then the question is, once you've got that through line that an audience of one or 100 is resonating with, because there's a lot of rehearsal live and feedback loops that happen in prepping a talk, um, how are we going to use that in the script? Dr. Waldinger's talk culminates in the through line. He doesn't repeat it once. It's stated once. Simon Sinek repeats his through line six times. Both are top 10 talks. Both have, you know, ripple effect in, in clarity. But, you know, it's um, there are two ways to approach it, a number of ways to approach it. Um, so 
you know, my willowing down is not the only way to a through line and use of the through line one time is not the only way to make use of it in a talk. And that's the joy and variety of, you know, the TED ideas that um, don't all follow that same, it was a dark and stormy night structure. But the through line of the through line is that you need to have one, you know? Yes, it needs in my, in, I, I agree. I agree. Now I want to talk about story because, you know, we start off, we start off with expertise. We start off with decades of experience and, and a lot of ideas in my head, post-it notes, a wall of post-it notes. And then we, the whittling down, the finding of the through line. And then you use this beautiful terminology, which I love, which is story wrapped. Then we've got to take that and we have to wrap it in story. Story is the vehicle. Story is what's going to make it travel at speed, go viral. So, Talk to me about how you start to find the right stories, the, the right wrapping for this idea. Well, you know, the goal is not just uh, bright and shiny wrapping paper. Um, it's sticky wrapping. We want that story to stick with the audience and be shared and move around. And there are, you know, a number of shapes or forms of story. Uh, Nancy Duarte, who you've had on, uh, speaks to this in her latest book, The Shape of Story, and she highlights Kurt Vonnegut's um, theorizing around story shape. And she's spot on. He was spot on. And I incorporated his insight in my first training seven years ago. Um, you know, the classic shape of story is man walks along, falls in a hole, gets out of the hole, continues, right? You see the shape there. Um, the setup, the problem, the resolution, three-act structure, basic story shape stuff. But there, you know, Kurt Vonnegut hazarded there were many other shapes of story. And then researchers uh, came along and uh, in aggregate looked at stories and whether it was Google Books or whatnot, and they began to discern their six patterns. What are the six classic shapes of story? Well, that's all very interesting, but what I care most about is what's the stickiest form? Not what are three or four other shapes of story. What is the stickiest form? And that is that highly concentrated hero's journey, right? Man walks along, falls in a hole, gets out of a hole, continues. Everybody has a life of stories, a career of stories. Not everybody gives those stories credence. Um, most people discount those stories. And often people are telling stories that aren't theirs. And that can undermine the potency of what's being shared on stage in the TED or the TED style context. And, you know, it's worth noting, TED has redefined how we share and spread ideas. You cannot give a keynote and not be compared to Simon Sinek and Brene Brown and all the big Tedsters. You cannot deliver a sermon and not be compared to a, a TED talk I saw last night that really touched me, Pastor. You cannot even, you know, pitch a, uh, a startup and not be compared to the TED model of communications. And uh, stories, sticky stories in particular, are a potent central factor. And those stories can't, again, just be inserted. 
because they're entertaining uh, or tangential to the topic. They really ideally wrap around the big idea, wrap around each of the three key points and help with the spread. There's two things that you said there. One is that it's not always the obvious ones, which was a question I was going to ask you because I I often find that when you hear a speech for the first time, someone's practicing a speech or you're reviewing a speech and the stories that they choose, they're just not quite, you know, as you said, they're not personal. You can't feel them. They don't have that kind of grippingly human quality to them. And it's not until you have a conversation with that person about, you know, tell me, tell me about this. Talk. What is it? Why does this touch you so much? Where does this come from? You know, what, what resonates with you the most and why and when? It's not until you have those conversations that all of a sudden a story comes out that they don't necessarily want to share because it's personal. It means a lot. The, and those are the stories where you're like that. That's what we need to, not necessarily what we need to hear, but that's what we need to feel. That's you in a space that we need to feel in order for this to become sticky. Do you find, do you find that? Do you find that the stories that people need to tell are obviously are usually not the most obvious ones or the ones that they want to tell? I think uh, I'm very visual and it always helps my clients when we're talking about stories. Um, uh, there's some, you know, overlaps here. What, who is the audience, right? Uh, that's, that's one. Outside of the TED context, it's not always a general audience, and that's the TED audience. But um, there's, there's the audience we're speaking to. What are their priorities, goals, hopes, whatever? Um, there's also, so we need to, our stories need to relate to that audience, be relatable. Um, but I, I say visually because um, picture a bullseye, the center of the bullseye, is your personal life experience, career experience story. That's the most potent, gripping, you know, pulse speeding form of story. I'm going to lean in as you say, let me tell you a story. I was. Um, the next radiating circle in that bullseye pattern is the story of someone I personally know. The next radiating story, the next radiating story, the next radiating story is Abraham Lincoln and the Wright brothers. We don't know them. Um, uh, and, and so what happens when you're sharing the story of famous and distant VIPs, um, their dissonance happens. And my understanding of who Abraham Lincoln was is very different probably from yours. And there's a little bit of tension and clash. And as the audience is wrestling with those versions, even subconsciously, the bonding and movement together we're looking to build, the momentum we're looking to build in the talk begins to, um, you know, fade. Or there's, there's dissonance there that begins to uh, break the momentum. And so uh, leaning into a personal first person or that second radiating circle um, story is always um, a great place to start. But then, as you said, we need to sort out the TMIs and the, you know, personal but not relevant. Again, we're looking for a story wrapped story. Yeah, there is a difference between intentional and authentic. And yeah. I'd far rather someone be intentional about what they share as opposed to sweepingly authentic with, with what they share. Um, 
what's what are some of the questions you ask the people you work with to try and pull out these stories, these bullseye or close to the bullseye stories? Well, you know, kind of the opening conversation is usually, you know, take me from grade school to the present and take as much time as you need. Well, I mean, where are they going to detour? That's where their heart and interest lies. Uh, where are they going to stall? Is it college? Was it the first job? Was it the first divorce? Was it all of these uh, potential stories and detours are rich. And if the idea has been milled enough that we have an inkling what it's going to be, again, recent conversation today, it's around patience. And she has a very different understanding of what the value of patience um, and, and what it can mean to achieving a goal. Well, um, uh, if patience is the identified theme and possible, the through line is going to come out of that, where in her tale is, you know, the win going to be, oh, that, that was patience-driven win. Mm. So again, starting with the through line, and then going through and picking out, you know, where does that through line most pop up in my experiences? Yeah, I take clients through the idea mill process in a cohort model. You know, there, it, there's a course option, there's a cohort option, then there's, you know, the one-on-one -on -one thing. And, um, but I love the big idea mill cohort over, you know, five weeks of content and workshopping because um, those, those, through lines are shaky at first, but then more and more clear as you move into the week three, four uh, space. Um, then, you know, we take a pause in four, week four, and they begin to shop that around to their circle of trust and begin to get feedback outside of our little bubble. And then we reconvene. And then that informs everything that comes forward, you know, in scripting and rehearsals and adapting and then much less stage. Talk to me about the the rule of three. You mentioned you mentioned it briefly. I know it's not the only structure, you know, however, it is a very prevalent structure. I was talking to Cody Keenan, who's Barack Obama's speechwriter. And even he was saying, you know, the cadence of three, there is something very powerful about having, you know, your powerful introduction and then three key points. Have you have you found that to be so? Is three the magic number when it comes to the amount of points that people can not only digest but spread to their inner circle? You know, we're not going to remember five, seven, and eleven points. And um, you know, not to return to church, but the sermon uh, that most powerfully lands um, is um, you know in homiletics. That's the fancy Greek word for preaching, right? One of the old lines was um, a big idea, three points in a poem. Now this is 1950, right? Back when poetry was going to be part of the the mix. Um, but these days, you know, it's a story, and I think there's a there's a lot to the reality that moving an idea that's focused around three points, um, that is story sticky, uh, that engages us more than anything, any model. Um, you know, the, the, the rule of three, three little pigs, 
three wise men. Um, I came, I saw, I conquered. Father, Son, Holy Ghost. It goes on and on. It is, it is the pulse and current of our culture and, and idea sharing. And so defaulting to that is one of the things Ted did very early on. And it's, you know, seems to be working. You know, I've had this conversation in so many different forms, the power of the rule of three, and yet I have never been able to find so far the neuroscience or any kind of you know, academia that backs up why the number three is so powerful for us, but it just is. It is. And as you said, you know, through the ages, through through the centuries, the power of three has come back over and over again. And why it is so compelling to the human mind, I do not know. But it, but it's worth knowing that it just is. And use it. Do not question it. If I ever come across any concrete evidence, I will unearth it. But it's definitely one. It's definitely one to use. The other, some of the other ones, and I know you've got your sticky story structure, which I loved. By the way, some of those we've already we've already touched on, such as um, you need a structure. You need to have a structure. Things like the rule of three. You need a compelling beginning. Um, textured. I loved. That's one of those. Textured. What do you mean when you say the word textured? Ah, so you've you've done some research and digging. Good for you. I usually I usually hold back on the sticky story model. Um, six six parts, in my estimation, make for a sticky story. Uh, so sure, let's dig into that. You know, a sticky story. You're right. Uh, first, it's structured. Uh, second, it's textured. So. Um, the toilet was leaking. The plumber showed up and asked me to stand out of the way, but I wanted to watch with my daughter because I'd like her to know the basics of plumbing someday. And as he reached around bending to get the back pipe, that classic plumber's butt and butt cheek, hot, hot day, a little bit of sweat dribbling down. All right. That's all the texture we need, but it's very visceral. And, and you just need two or three little visuals that fit in the context of what you're sharing um, uh, to, to have, you know, to check the textured box, if you will. Right. Um, if you recall, that lone sentinel coming down Main Street was tall white haired, white beard. And if we spent some time thinking about that story being central to the opening, I would have talked about his eyes because they were very different, blue and sparked and soft. Somebody's seeing Lyman right now and they've never met him. That's all you need for texture. But also something else just happened in that moment. And I don't know if it happened for everybody that's listening, but you changed, um, and I can see you, so that's an added layer, but you changed in that moment. When you were telling that story with that amount of depth, I could feel how you felt in that moment, looking into those eyes. Your your energy, your mm -hmm. state, your entire being changed, and I think that that is a secondary power to texture. On the, on the one hand, you know, you involve all your senses. What, what could you smell? What could you hear? What could you taste? What was happening? How did it feel? But there's something about telling a textured story that pushes us into a state that is absolutely spellbinding. Like you, you, your whole body changed when you told that version, the textured version of that story. 
and to go back to one principle we we spoke to earlier that was the center of the bullseye story mm. Mm. one of my most intimate relationships began in that moment of exchange in the middle of the street mm. so there's there's something even virtually that's communicated subconsciously to an audience that visceral energy that we just felt is present in Brene Brown's telling, um, in Simon Sinek's stories, um, even though they're not his personal stories, um, there's just something special happening there that, um, you know, is magical, but designed. Magical, but designed. Beautiful and yet clearly intentional. The, an incredible speaker and one of my favorite human beings on the planet, a guy called Tim Gard, um, he has this amazing phrase. He says, well, you don't tell and retell a story. You live and you relive a story. And that, oh, I love that. Yeah, isn't that amazing? And that's the difference. That's the adding of the texture. You, you move out of telling mm. it and you move into reliving mm. it. And we can feel the mm -hmm. difference. Mm-hmm. So I want to go on to another point of this this kind of sticky story framework. The we, another one that I loved, um, kid leveled. Now I'd never heard it called kid leveled before. Um, we were contorting a, an acronym, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that works. It works. I mean, we, you know, actually, I'm not going to describe it. What does kid leveled mean? Simplicity. Uh, we want clean, simple language. Sixth grade level. I always tell my clients, you know. Um, I work with a lot of PhDs and, you know, um, the, the thought leaders with a lot of letters behind their names. And so often um, the, the script has far too many syllables and far too many difficult words. I, I want Hemingway, not Hawthorne. And those two American writers um, uh, are, could not be more different. Hawthorne's florid and long winded and, and Hemingway short, clean and crisp. Um, so those sixth grade um, words and sentences are crisp, and clean and clear. Kid leveled. Yeah. What are some of the, your favorite stories from Ted that if somebody was listening and wanted to go and check them out as this is a classic example of an incredibly sticky story? You know, I use this example all the time. He's not a client of mine, but I ever so much admire this uh, story. There are two that are a great contrast. One is by Sean Aker, and he tells the story of nap time with his sister and, you know, falling out of the bunk beds, breaking her arm, and she's a unicorn. So, you know, that that's a very short, you know, two-minute, 90-second, two-minute uh challenge-shaped story. Uh, another is uh, The Dirty Jobs, Mike Rowe. And he, he has a 17-minute talk that runs about 12 minutes of one story. It's the castration of sheep story. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, he's, he's the Dirty Jobs guy. He's highly entertaining. And in this message about the dignity and importance of dirty jobs he shares this farm experience and it's hysterical uh, the shape is the same as sean acres 
the shape is the same as man walks, falls in hole, gets out of hole. What are some of the core mistakes? You know, we've we've gone through structure, we've gone through through line, we've gone through stories. We've let's just go to the negative for a second. If the, the best that you can do is just avoid these factors, what are the factors to avoid? Well, you know, Ted has uh, the Ten Commandments, and any speaker who's not well versed in those is about to make a big mistake, and um, and then scratch their head and wonder why they're one of the hundreds of thousands of TEDxers on YouTube not being watched and whose ideas are not spreading. And they're as mundane as don't sell from stage, um, and uh, as as nuanced as you know, uh, serve your audience. This message is a present, a presentation a present to your audience, uh, Chris Anderson says, uh, the head of TED. You know, I think the, the selfishness of a speaker drawn to the TED community because they want to be viral really impacts uh, the potential um, that you know, they're, they're going to experience in the TEDx, you know, space. They're, they're either going to be washed out of a, a top tier talk uh, event and find their way to a bottom tier event that's just going to scrape speaker, speakers in because they're figuring out the first year, the second year. Um, and, and, you know, what's, what's sad there is not only are they selling themselves and their book or their consulting services or their genius, but um, they're completely forgetting the service uh, to the audience that's so important. Um, you know, those are a, a few that, that pop to mind. And it's so easy to get jazzed about the million views, the viral. I try not to use the word viral too often because it's there's a little bit of uh, magic in there that you can't game. But the the, the certainty is uh, if a talk's not clearly focused, if we've been talking about story wrapped in action igniting, you know, that's table ante right there. And then we start layering in some of these other uh, factors that we've touched on or that we haven't. What is a rehearsal flurry as opposed to a practice session, as opposed to a round robin feedback loop? I mean, all of that nuance. So, um, um, you know, here's one that uh, in your line of former line of work, you've probably can resonate with. It's that big brand speaker, multi-bestseller who contacts me and says, you know what, I've got the talk. I don't need any help with the talk. Can you connect me with the decision makers at TED? And, you know, uh, one, I'm not an agent. Two, you probably don't have the talk because you didn't come at this at the most basic level of idea milling and testing and focus grouping and vulnerability. You came at this with all the answers. And I rarely see um, that posture translate well on screen. Because as you said, there's a disconnect there between right. the intention, right. the intention of what you're trying to do versus your own intention, your agenda behind doing it. 
My my last my last question for you is it's a question that I get asked a lot and honestly I don't know that I ever come up with a good enough answer but I've tried to answer and answer it in a variety of different ways. And that is this question of imposter syndrome. You know people who mm, have huge in the land of oh, incredible ideas some of the most incredible compelling human beings with the most incredible compelling ideas I see left on the sidelines. Because of this one phenomenon of, you know, who do I think I am? Who do I think I am to share this? And other, the fear of somebody else asking us, who do you think you are? To step right. up there and say what you have to say. What, is there a piece of guidance that you, that you give people who may be struggling with the question, either who do you think you are or imposter syndrome? Again, this conversation today with a, a, a possible uh, TEDx speaker, she said, I've heard from four or five people in the last month uh, since she accomplished this huge physical feat. Um, as I talked with them, you need to give a TED talk. And so people are asking and for and affirming that there's something there. And then I have a conversation with them and more often than not, I'll see something there and affirm it. And then my role is that of a Sherpa, right? Um, I come alongside that thought leader, that speaker, that maybe not yet, but maybe I could be um, individual who's doubting, who's second guessing and is fearful. And I begin affirming you can get across that crevasse, you know, um, that ladder is safe. Let's pitch the tent here out of the wind, but in the sun, you know, because I've been up and down this Mount Everest so many times. I know, um, there are a number of ways and techniques within certain boundaries, uh, to bring that idea to stage. And I, I, over time can build a sense of trust with that speaker and they begin believing in themselves. And then the power and potency of, of this model of idea preparing to spread, right, is it's very open source. Um, you know, the practices that happen in front of live audiences before you end up in the, the TED uh, theater environment um, are vulnerable but they're also affirming and that confidence can build over time as they go from idea to center stage. I love that idea of a Sherpa. I just think I'm going to, I'm going to take that and I'm going to run with that to find yourself a Sherpa, someone who has walked the road, someone who knows the pitfalls, someone who, who sees in you, what in that point you may or may not see for yourself and who can decode the road forward for you, find that Sherpa and stick with them. Um, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to take that one on board myself. Well, Devin, thank you. Thank you so much for oh, Julie, your, thank your time you. and for sticking, <laughs> for sticking with um, seminary school long enough to decode something that has gone on to contribute <laughs> so much to so many people bringing ideas out into the world that are truly worth spreading. So thank you. Well, I hope it's been of service to your audience. I hope someone found this uh, 
helpful and useful. Um, and to continue the conversation, um, there's a, a tool that we share uh, on connecttocompelnow.com, connecttocompelnow.com, and it unpacks these three points and pairs them with different TED Talks. And it's really instructive and helpful that way and might be a conversation starter one day. Perfect. We will get the we'll get the link from that and we'll get it in the show notes for anyone that's listening. Jump on. I mean, seeing it in action is is the best way. Is the best way to, to learn. Thank you again, Devin. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.